All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be on page 993 in the Blue Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along with us there. As Pastor Ben said, kids, it's good to have you in the service with us. Um, And I know the rest of us, we understand an extra measure of grace given to our families this morning. We we might be a little more chatty in here, might be a little more wiggly. We're good. I'll just talk louder. We're fine. But we really are glad to have you in here. Uh, Miss Megan has made a sermon note sheet specific for this sermon. That if you don't have, you can work through um, as kids. Uh, You can get those down at uh, Grace Connect. They have some extra copies there. You can grab those. Um, and yeah, parents, if, if, it, if you do find it a struggle to, to stay in, uh, again, we really are, getting, are gracious here. But if you want to go down to the Narthex, go down the hall where the service is streaming, uh, that opportunity is also available for you. Well, it has been and continues to be a beautiful Memorial Day weekend so far this, uh, this weekend. It's always a favorite weekend for me uh, because as we know in the Northeast, this weekend marks the beginning of summer. Uh, the calendar says it doesn't start till end of June, but we know. Uh, we know Memorial Day weekend starts summer, and I get in myself this childlike excitement for the anticipation of summer that I thought when I was a kid eventually I would grow out of. And uh, 35 years later, have not grown out of it yet. Still get the same level of excitement this weekend. Um, and I imagine as you think about not only this weekend, but the summer ahead, and maybe some of the activities you'll be thinking. Uh, Maybe some of you will find yourself on a boat uh, in these next couple months, right? Get out in a boat, enjoy the water, enjoy beautiful weather. And I say that because I came across a quote this past week that not only was the quote true, but it was written in 43 B.C. So a full generation before even Jesus was born, this Latin writer named, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Publilius Cyrus says this, and we'll have it on screen. Anyone can hold the helm when the sea is calm. Uh, last summer at Labor Day weekend, which we know in the Northeast is the unofficial end to summer. Calendar says end of September. We know it ends Labor Day weekend. And that weekend, my family and I were able to be up in the Adirondacks with uh, a family from Grace Church. And Caden and Brindley, both, our oldest two, got to take turns uh, with the steering wheel and driving the boat in the lake. I have footage of Brindley driving the boat in the lake. <laughs> just exuding confidence in, in everyone with them. And out in the open, in, in the calm water, no boats around. It's true. Anyone can drive the boat. All right, so kids, this summer, I mean, just you remind your parents, if, if Brinley can drive the boat, you can drive the boat. But here's what happened. Uh, if we got closer to other boats, or the way we were going got narrow up in the lake, or to avoid islands or rocks... It always happened that at that moment, the captain of the boat took over. And I think about that as we continue now our series in 1 Timothy that we've been preaching through verse by verse, the reality that godly leadership is always needed in the church. But it's especially needed when things in the church get rocky, when tension rises, when there becomes a greater amount of conflict or difficulty. That is when godly leadership is needed most. Not anyone can drive the boat when things get tough. Which is why now in chapter 5, as the letter begins to wind down, and Paul at this point in the letter is giving all these practical instructions to Timothy on a whole number of things. Uh, He now returns to the issue of leadership, which is talked about most in 1 Timothy than any other topic. That Timothy can go teach the entire church. 
Because what we see in the New Testament model, certainly our model of grace, is what we call elder-led congregationalism. And what that means is that it is the church, meaning it is the congregation that is ultimately responsible for the installment of, the honoring of, and where necessary, the removal of elders in the local church. That won't be Timothy's job. It's not just the fellow elder's job. It's the church's job. And so how should Timothy teach the church and how that should look? Well, as we'll see as we go through this passage, Paul is going to give no less than 15 commandments in this text. This is going to be rapid fire, one after another. But they're going to break down into three broad categories of instruction. I'll give two of them up front, and then we're going to unpack them one at a time. Provision, discipline, and installation. Three things the entire church needs to do and know well if you're going to be part of a healthy church. So we're not going to read the whole passage at front. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to work our way to the end of chapter 5 today. But we're going to start now with just verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. First area of instruction that Timothy's to give the whole church at Ephesus is number one, commendable provision. Commendable provision. Uh, last week, Pastor Ben preached about how uh, Paul gave instruction to the church on how to handle their mercy ministry. Do you remember? Uh, particularly the widow ministry in Ephesus, which was all out of whack. So Paul is laying down a framework for Timothy on how to make decisions regarding widows and and especially those who ought to be receiving financial help from the church. But since we know that there has been problems with the elders, Paul is now returning back to them. We saw a lot of it in early chapters. Now he returns back. In the same way, he's going to lay down a framework for how the church ought to provide for leaders who are overseeing and shepherding them. And... With those problems, it kind of provides reason, within good reason, that uh, maybe Paul was in fear that the church was going to say, we are not going to honor the elders who are leading well because of the elders who are leading badly. Or we're not going to honor the new elders that are put in place by the church, that they might struggle with that idea of providing for them because of how jaded they are with how burned they've been by the elders in the past. Combine this with the fact that the church in Ephesus seemed to struggle with a love for money and materialism which gets revealed in the next chapter, chapter 6. We know Ephesus itself was a very wealthy city in the ancient Roman Empire. It was maybe the wealthiest city, known especially for its excess and its materialism and its affluence. We know that there was a hierarchy based upon wealth within the city. You can see how that could bleed into the church. So with all that in mind, Paul knows this exhortation is needed. Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, If your Bibles are open, see that word honor. That word honor is the connection to the entire chapter and the context around it. It connects it to the previous passage when Paul said, honor widows who are truly widows. And and then honor in that sense, sense meant to carry out the mercy ministry with the financial provision through the resources of the church. And now Paul says to give the elders who rule well double honor. Now, despite what some pastors might tell you, that doesn't mean double the pay, all right? 
the way, I know, it stinks, all right? Uh, but that's just, the, we, we have to be real here. That, that the Greek phrase, the way that was used in the language, was meant that the, the double honor of reverence and support, right? The two ways to honor, respect your elders who rule well and provide for them. So not double the provision. And then to support this exhortation that Paul maybe knows is going to be met with some kind of, ah, I don't know if I love that, uh, Paul wisely quotes both Moses in the Old Testament and then Jesus in the New Testament. First, a quote from Moses, which appears in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Moses is teaching that to the nation of Israel as they're about to enter, enter the promised land. This is an argument, both ancient and today is a common way to argue or persuade somebody to a point. It's called from the lesser to the greater. You know about it even if you haven't heard of that. It's the argument of from the lesser to the greater, from the ox to the elders. So treading or threshing was the practice of separating the husk from the grain in the harvest. And what they would do is that there would be a threshing floor, which was hard-packed dirt, with, surrounded by a curb that would keep everything kind of uh, in that hard-packed dirt. And then the grain from the harvest would be brought in and dumped onto the threshing floor. An ox then would pull a sled over the threshing floor. And this sled had rocks underneath it or small pieces of metal that would break the husks apart. All right, you with me? I know we're, you know we're in the Northeast. We don't really understand this stuff, all right? But, but you would have this threshing process happen. And Paul is saying, since the ox is laboring to do the hard work of pulling the sled, it is entitled to eat some of that grain to be able to maintain the strength to continue working and providing the grain. So it would make no sense to not provide for the ox in order to keep more for yourself if you expected the ox to work harder and longer. No ox, no grain. This is from the lesser to the greater. In the same way, the church should provide for the elders who rule well. That phrase, rule well, indicates a, a hard work, right? Labor work, like work of an ox, right? And especially hard work towards preaching and teaching. For they are feeding you the word, to build up the church and the maturity of Christ. Everyone wants to grow. and We talk about this all the time. If you're at Grace Church, we want you to want to grow. We want you to have an expectation. I'm going to grow here. My, my knowledge of Jesus Christ is going to grow here. My affections for Christ is going to grow here. And that growth requires a constant feeding of the word. So if you wanted someone to dedicate themselves to the oversight and the shepherding of the church, then in the same way, it would make no sense not to provide for them because then they're going to have to get that provision elsewhere for them and their family. And when they get that provision elsewhere, it's going to inevitably take away from their time to work hard towards laboring in the church. So Paul may be, again, anticipating that some will say, well, Paul, that's great. That was Old Testament. That was Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant now. So now, right away, he also quotes Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus was sending out the disciples two by two. Uh, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And Jesus told them specifically, don't bring any money with you. Go out two by two. Bring no money in your pockets. But stay wherever people will give you room and board. Because, and then here's the quote in 1 Timothy 5, because the laborer deserves his wages. Ministers of the gospel are provided for so that they can work effectively and with support 
And when he gets to the local church, when conflict arises, like it has risen in Ephesus, and the circumstances get hard, those elders are expected to steer the ship when things get tense. Okay, so Paul exhorts Timothy to ensure the church is aware of their responsibility to respect and to provide for the elders. All right, now let's talk about how this applies. All right, you know this makes me super comfortable talking about, all right? Just love this. Love talking about money in front of you all. But Paul even here distinguishes between elders who are primarily preaching and teaching and those who are not. Did you see he makes that distinguishment? Uh, one reason why today you would see in uh, several denominations, including a, a Presbyterian denomination, that has the title teaching elders and ruling elders. I think I'm right in this, could be wrong, but teaching elders are typically those who are on staff and paid as part of the church, and they receive compensation, whereas ruling elders do not. There are other churches, like Grace Church, who has similar way to distinguish. Uh, we don't call it teaching and ruling, but essentially it's either vocational pastors or vocational elders, that is often called pastors, or non-paid elders or lay elders. Further, the churches in the first century were in smaller congregations. Most of them met in homes, uh, likely had maybe a couple, maybe even one who would be paid overseeing and shepherding that um, congregation. Uh, today, uh, churches are larger. Churches like Grace, who has anywhere between 425, 450 on a weekend, require larger staff that extends beyond just the elders into operational roles and ministerial roles. So here's what that means for us, and we practice this, that when the congregation meets at the end of every year and they are presented a budget that they have the opportunity to see, ask questions about leading up to that meeting, the congregation votes for a budget to pass for the next year. That includes the compensation for the staff of our church. And when the congregation approves that budget, they're not just saying uh, that we approve it, looks good, but there's a sense with, if you're a member, you're saying that in approving it, you're accepting the responsibility to provide for and give towards that budget in full. And then what we have seen at Grace, and this is actually why this is not this hard for me to talk about this morning, or awkward about, is because one of the things and the markers that I think makes Grace Church really healthy is that we have a congregation that does just that. that. I can stand before you with a clear conscience and, and say that I feel the double honor from Grace Church of the respect and the provision. And, and, and that the congregation here does that with joy uh, to give even beyond what the budget has been over the last several years. And that's not all about money, but it includes that very uh, practical support of compensation. Um, okay, so, so now I can talk about this in a way where uh, if the Lord leads you outside of Grace Church, or maybe you're visiting and you go to another church, and you have a very basic question, or one day you're going to be on the finance committee at Grace that kind of sets the budget in place, or you're going to be an elder that kind of approves that and presents it to the congregation, here's a very practical question. How much should you pay the staff? How much at a church should you pay the pastors and the staff? What is the right amount? That's a big question. And here's a broad, but I think very helpful rule of thumb. This is what I think grace practices. I'm going to have a quote on the screen. This is from one of the commentators of the series, of the books I have, from Kent Hughes. He says this, Church staff ought to be compensated on the same scale as others in the congregation that are of the same experience and responsibilities in the workforce. They should not live above or below the means of their congregation. So I think that is a broad rule of thumb, but I think helpful. 
And so I was part of an organizational leadership cohort last year with a bunch of pastors uh, that were, uh, had this cohort just talking about organizational leadership. And they had a session. They talked about compensation. Uh, the two guys who led it boiled down that the local church's approach to compensation for its staff typically is in one of four categories. I'm going to quickly just kind of list them for you. Um, they said number one is the poverty provision. This is where they say Christian ministers should make just enough to get by. Not because the church is poor, but the church wants to keep the staff poor. <laughs> to maximize their dependence on God and keep them hungry. I think literally hungry. All right, Keep them hungry and that their dependence on God and towards the Lord. The poverty provision approach to compensation. Next, on the opposite end of the spectrum, to thrive and flourish. We want our staff to be our representatives to the world. And we want them to show the world how Christianity is thriving. So we want them to flaunt their wealth in a way that says we are flourishing. And it's going to reflect well on the staff. Make them thrive and flourish above and beyond the church so that everyone sees that Christians can thrive. Equally unhealthy, opposite end of the spectrum. And then number three, they called it minimalistic. And the guy said, and it seems like it's, it's a good point, and with their experience, I believe them, that this is the most common approach churches use. That's not the healthiest. He says, we want to pay as little as possible without looking stingy. <laughs> What's the least we could get by with and keep them happy and not bring questions? And that the, the numbers are from that framework. And it's under the guise of stewardship. We want to be good stewards, so what's the least amount we can give them? And as especially limit their pay if we know they have money coming in from elsewhere. If they have any money coming from elsewhere, let's deduct that from what we're expecting them to do here. So the compensation is not based on the role or what it's worth. It's not based on the context, but rather it's what can we get away with in every situation. And then last, and what they call the competitive strategy. I think the word commendable, which is why the word I use commendable provision, actually fits better. And that this is the uh, strategy to seek to understand what the role of the job is worth. Take into account the context the church is in. Take into account the makeup of the congregation. And determine compensation based on that role. And if you're going to err, err on the side of generosity. And so that is one uh, that I, I can say, and um, just in my involvement with the elders and being on staff now for eight years, that I think Grace Church seeks to be commendable in providing for their staff. And so, again, take that instruction for wherever the Lord leads you in a local church, because every local church is going to have to decide this and how the Lord might use you in those conversations. Here's the last thing on point one, then we've got to go fast. And here's a vital point. The exhortation is not just for the sake of the staff. It's for the discipleship of the church. This point he's making is not just for the sake of the elders and the staff. It's for the discipleship of the church. Because generosity is not first about money, but discipleship. In the life of a believer. And, we're, and we're, we can go quickly here because we will talk about it more in chapter 6. But here's the fundamental, fundamental, undeniable connection in the word. That there is a connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. There is an undeniable connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. And we need to acknowledge that a non-generous Christian is a contradiction. 
A non-generous Christian is a contradiction. At best, it is a Christian who's living in disobedience. And at worst, it is revealing that that person never truly understood or responded to the gospel. Because generosity is this evidence. It is one of the litmus tests on how well we live out the gospel. It's the affirmation that everything is God's. Everything is God's. And God was generous towards us in giving his one and only son so that those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And when you see money through that lens, through the lens of discipleship, our our generosity in this world, particularly towards investing in the kingdom of God, it's not measured in the amount given. There's no hierarchy in the amount given. Hear me, it's measured in the amount sacrificed. Generosity is not about the amount given. It is measured in the amount that is sacrificed. And so, kids, while you're with us in the service today, just a word to you. Um, I I know as a parent of children, uh, your parents do not have to teach you to love money. Somehow you just figure it out. Right? It happens naturally because you understand money is needed to buy stuff and to buy things. And so you think about money and you, uh, and, and you want to think about money and how God's going to use you to make money and how you're going to do with that money. That, those are natural thoughts, good thoughts. But kids, I hope you listen the times when your parents tell you about generosity. You'll love money on your own, but you'll love generosity through the Holy Spirit. And it is beautifully freeing to be able to live your life as you get older, to say and practice the reality that in Christ we control our money and our money does not control us. Beautifully freeing. All right, we got to go fast. We got to go chapter 5 now. Read the next passage, 19 to 21, to see the second point. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Number two, practical instruction to Timothy to give the church, have courageous discipline. When it comes to the discipline and potential removal of elders and leaders in the church, Timothy is to exert both caution and then courage. So if we are to honor those who do well, we also need to confront those who don't. And we know Timothy has had bad elders. We know from chapter 1, two of them have already been kicked out. It's within reason that there are more work that has to be done in this realm. But just as Ben covered last week, that with the mercy ministry, it's not enough to just say, we want to be merciful, we got the money, we're just going to throw money out. No, no, to, to have an intentional mercy ministry, you need a framework. You need consistency. So, too, the discipline surrounding elders needs to be carried out with intentionality and through a consistent framework. And it's so vital for the health of a church. So, first, Timothy, caution. Paul harkens back to the Old Testament once again, calling for any charge against an elder to have two or three witnesses in order to be heard and taken seriously. Why does he do this? With all the issues they're having in Ephesus, why is he now saying, hey, pump the brakes just for a second, Timothy? Well, on the one hand, in a position of leadership, this is not just only in the church, but it's also in the church. Leaders can be vulnerable to, be, to being taken down by someone who does have an agenda to destroy their character. 
And leaders are just in a more public way going to be more vulnerable, more out there for one person to exercise an agenda against them. So, and we saw, especially within the qualifications for elder in chapter 3, how many of them were related to character. Character is the most important thing for an elder. And so if a single accusation that is false harms somebody's character, it can be very difficult for that elder to recover and for the reputation to recover, which will in turn harm the church if a godly elder is being taken down in a way that he shouldn't have been. So, Timothy, in a time when you are so desperately trying to right the the ship here and you're steering the boat and things are rocky, still use caution. Still use wisdom when you first hear about something regarding an elder. But then, and here's the point, then, Timothy, you got to exercise courage when it becomes clear that an elder is in the wrong you got to use courage when he is persisting in sin and showing himself to be disqualified from overseeing and shepherding the church. So here's the temptation that is the opposite side of the error, where if one is to just listen to every accusation and just remove them right away, the opposite temptation, and one that I think is more common today as churches get bigger and ministries get more complex, where not being courageous is a real problem in the church. When the evidence is clear against a man that he is in sin and non-repentant, whether that be patterns of abusive leadership or a moral failure or dishonesty in the pastorate, to not take action is to inflict harm on the church. And the temptation becomes, especially if this is a singular pastor that the ministry has grown under, especially if he has influence not only in your church but outside your church, to cover up those offenses, to trial and handle it in-house without letting people know. Handle it in the dark out of the fear that the leader might retaliate on you or that the success of the ministry might come to a halt. And now you've got this big budget that's been relying on this big leader and now he's gone. Now what? And all these things can lead to a lack of courage to do what God is calling them to do. So Timothy, have the courage to tell it to the church. Did you see that? To let it be known in the presence of all. All means the church, not only for the sake of transparency, because in line with what we already talked about, elder-led congregationalism, it's not going to be Timothy who's going to remove them. It's going to be the church. So you've got to tell it to the church, and you've got to put the power in their hands to decide what to do. But there's a second reason. Did you see it? There's a second reason why Paul tells Timothy this. So that the other elders may stand in fear as well. It's interesting that he's saying that when you have the courage to root out an elder who's persistent in sin, it is a sign to the other elders, and I think by extension to the other members, that sin has consequences. That God might use this to prevent them from failing as well. Not only consequences in the church, but first and foremost, that there are consequences against God when you offend God. When you sin, that first and foremost, that's an offense against God and not the church. And so a professing believer, especially an elder, who's persisting in sin, they have lost sight of the holiness of God. Pastor Ben prayed about it. We didn't even talk about it beforehand. He prayed about the holiness of God. Do you know what the holiness of God is? Grace Church, do you know what the holiness of God is? 
It is God's transcendence. It is God's magnificence, that sense in which God is higher and God is superior to anything in all of creation. That which is holy is that which is different. And the holiness of God says, God is God and I am not. So when someone loses sight or a vision of the holiness of God, they become emboldened to serve themselves instead. And that's the root of the issue. When you lose sight of the holiness of God, you'll do whatever it takes to make more money. No matter the lies that we need to tell or the unethical practices we need to practice, and we will call them loopholes instead of sin. I found a loophole. And that's what happens when we lose sight of the vision of God, the holiness of God. When we lose sight of the holiness of God, we break our vows and our marriages in sexual sin, especially if we can keep them hidden from our spouse because you've lost sight of the holiness of God. And you've justified it now as a coping mechanism for how stressed you are in life. When we lose sight of the holiness of God, we can gossip about others. We can tear them down, tear down their character, slander against them, make ourselves feel better because we put them down without any fear. You see, we're all aware of the things that we are prone towards when we lose sight of the holiness of God. And so when the church has lost the courage to hold people accountable, particularly its leaders, without partiality, for their good and for the good of those who see it, they are not going to be a healthy church. This point reminds us to not mess around, all of us, to not mess around with the holiness of God. Which then leads to number three in our final point. Let's read verses 22 to 25. Paul writes, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not can remain hidden. All right, five minutes left, final point. Number three, careful installation careful installation. One of the ways to help having to remove bad elders is to ensure there is a wise system of installing good ones and godly ones. Starting with, don't be careless. Don't be too quick to do it. Don't carelessly be drawn in by sin of the current elders just because they're elders, just because of their authority and their place. Don't be drawn in by them and join them in their sin just because of their leadership. Be careful, Timothy. Keep yourself pure. Which then leads to the personal aside in verse 23. And verse 23 in your Bible is a great reminder to all of us. This is a real letter written by a real person to a real person. This is not a once upon a time to just create a story. Paul sat down and wrote to Timothy. And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, stop your water-only diet. No more just water, but use a little wine for the sake of your frequent ailments. So, real letter written from a real person to a real person. Somehow, Timothy told Paul he's on a water-only diet. Maybe, and I think this is probable, but it's my opinion, is that because alcohol abuse and drunkenness was such a problem in this church, that to make a point, he was going to abstain from all of it, to make the point that you guys are not handling your alcohol well, you are using it to justify drunkenness. And so he stopped all his wine. But now he's got stomach issues. 
and he's getting sick a lot. So Paul tells him, Timothy, you can keep yourself poor. Oh, no, not poor, pure. <laughs> I don't know, that's the spirit. Keep yourself pure. But drink a little wine because in the ancient world that was devoid of a lot of medicine and the way that we often think about it today, wine was used for medicinal purposes. So from this letter alone, we can affirm alcohol intake is not wrong in and of itself. But before we take this verse to justify any excess drinking this weekend, let's remember, he said, a little wine. He said, moderation. Because, again, I think over-drinking was a problem in this church, which is why it's in the qualifications for elders and deacons, not a drunkard. And dependence on alcohol is sinful, full stop. And drunkenness is unbecoming of a believer and disqualifying for a leader. And for many of us, maybe the answer is just is stop, is fully abstain. So his command to Timothy is not for everybody. It's for Timothy, but we can understand the principle for that. Which then that leads to the concluding statement, directly connected to the installation of elders. Be careful who and how you choose to put into that office. Because the sins of some are conspicuous, that means plainly seen. It's obvious, they can't be an elder. They're not ready to be an elder. But there's others. If you're not paying attention, the sin is there, but you won't, it won't be seen till later. You've got to be careful. All right, he's plainly acknowledging, listen, in a church, we can all affirm this, it's easy to fool other people. It just is. We are easily able to fool other people. So if we are in the position, like the membership is, to instate new elders, he says, don't just go to the ones who, who appear godly and are on their best behavior around other Christians. Give it some time. Pay attention. Because you typically learn most about someone when something goes wrong for them. You typically know what's on the inside of us when somebody's under some tension. It always comes to the surface. And then likewise, the final verse, it's the positive version of the same commandment. Some, uh, while to some the qualifications of elder might seem obvious, you might have the, the, the person you say, that is a gifted leader, a natural leader. They would be a great elder. Others have a godliness that will shine through over time. Don't overlook them. Godliness is not defined in a lot of the natural giftings we often think it is. It's often for elders, the quiet strength, the ones who are godly under pressure, the ones who keep their conviction and their compassion in all circumstances, those are your elders. So don't be careless, but be careful. Because as we started with in the introduction, from 46 BC, anyone can hold the helm when the sea is calm. But godly leaders are needed when things get tense. And this is as relevant for us as any text in the Bible. A letter just went out this week to call for a special congregational meeting on June 11th after the 11 a.m. service because we're going to vote on the installation of a new elder. The Alex Chan has been nominated to be an elder at Grace Church. And I have to be honest, part of me feels sorry for Alex that he's getting nominated while we're preaching through 1 Timothy. All right? Like he's going to get 800 questions in the next two weeks. But this is the system that Paul outlines. It is the church that honors, is the church that holds expectations, is the church that instates, and where needed is the church that removes. And it is necessary so that we are all equipped for the work of the ministry to help one another look more like Christ and Christ alone. Because in due time, Grace Church, we are all going to come before the Lord on that day. 
every single one of us sitting here are going to stand before God in all of his holiness. And we might be able to fool other people on earth. But on that day, there's no hiding. There's no justifying. And all will be laid bare. And the truth that all sin and fall short of the glory of God will be readily seen. And on that day, our only chance is the recognition of the glorious truth that the holy God is also the gracious God who in Christ alone provides what he demands. That Jesus given for us to die as a substitute for all who would turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in him. That is our only chance, all of us. Grace Church, can you say that with assurance this morning? In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing together in Christ alone. Grace Church, can you sing that with your full chest this morning? Do you know that you can? That it's available for you to turn to Christ, the holy God, the gracious God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how your word ushers us into true freedom. That true freedom is not found in ourselves, in our abilities. Father, but true freedom is found in, in you alone. And we thank you, Lord, how you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We thank you how you put us into churches and that this is a community uh, element of journeying with Christ, following Christ, Lord. We thank you for godly leaders that you put in state over the church, Lord. We thank you in this church there are no perfect men. But there are godly men that you have chosen, Father. And there are godly men and women all throughout the membership of this church that does instate those men. And we just pray, Lord, that you would use us, continually use us, work through us. And let it be all for your glory and the health of your church. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand. And let's sing before we take the Lord's Supper and conclude.